Adam Hutchison. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Mr. Nash? <laughs> I'm doing good. I'm doing good. You know, for the last two years, August has been a clear month. Um, and basically every year prior to that, it's smoky. You know, there's all this tremendous fear of, of wildfire. And while there's still that capability and potential right now, it's pretty nice. <laughs> Man, we just we just lit one up on the divide over by Lemai Pass yesterday. So our beautiful blue skies were changed in the matter of, of hours, you know. And from Twin Bridges, you could just see the plume oh. uh, making its way over. So it's not as bad. It's definitely hazy. It could be. It could be worse over this way. But man, fire season is just so. I mean, you just you just never know what you're going to get. You know. So yeah. Well, we're actually overcast here today, and I'm going to go guide a fly fishing trip this evening. And you know, looking at it a week out, I was like, man, I don't know. It's pretty hot, pretty dry. And definitely not the kind of conditions that I like to fish in, but, you know, uh, a cooler than normal overcast day with some afternoon breeze in August, we're oh. going to catch some fish on some hoppers, son. Hoppers, streamers, whatever you want, really. I mean, it's all on the menu right now. You know, I think August is one of those underrated months for, for anglers. You know, people tend to focus on May, June and July. I mean, you have the a huge range of hatches and stuff going on, but man, August is such a sleeper month. I love it because, uh, especially in Montana, tourism kind of goes away. Um, you know, the wild card is always water quality, you know, but God, the last few years, water has been excellent. It hasn't been too mossy. Uh, I mean, hoot owl is still in effect, but man, everything's on the menu. And then hoppers, I mean, the best hatch of all time. Right. So yeah. You just on the, you just guiding on the ranch there. Yep, exactly. So streamers aren't aren't really much of a thing here. I mean, we can do it a little bit. It's one of those, like, there's a couple pools where at last light you can go and drag a yuck bug through there and maybe turn up a bigger fish. Um, but generally, streamers are, are a little bit tricky, especially since we're bank fishing. You know, for me, you know, the best way to fish streamers is floating down the, the middle of the river and then casting at the banks. But... Uh, yeah. So, you know, having had so much of that experience on the big hole and, and some of those great rivers around you in Montana, coming back and trying to drag streamers from the middle of the river towards the bank is like, this isn't the way it's supposed to go. So I almost <laughs> have like a philosophical opposition to it. It's a, it's a swing, swinging game, I think, over on that side of the divide. You know, you're exactly right. It seems to change, you know. One of our top, you know, one of Winston's top pros, Brian Sylvie, he's like, man, I, it, it drives me crazy because on the Deschutes, you know, they don't really eat streamers either. You know, they'll eat a swung fly or a swung sculpin or something like that, but it's not really a streamer game. And I mean, that's just, that's interesting, right? So, I mean, over here on the east side of the, the, the divide, I mean, you get a cool day like you guys have over there and man, it. Even in August, it's a, it could be be just lights out. I mean, we were on the river last Friday, and <laughs> we had a crazy streamer day. And people don't think of August as streamers for, for streamers, uh, but I mean, if the conditions are right, you know, the fish are kind of cued in, warmer water temps, it, it could be lights out. But it's funny how that changes, you know, from region to region, you know. 
So, yeah. And, you know, if you get into some of our bull trout rivers, like streamers are, are definitely the ticket there, right? I mean, they would eat a tube sock if you stripped it in front of them. But <laughs> these, these rainbows, um, they just don't really do it that much over here. Now, there's definitely times where, you know, a sculptzilla is, is definitely the way to go, but it's still more or less a swung pattern, a, a swung presentation, even if you are, you know, articulating it a little bit, um, a- animating that, that presentation. But my buddy Paul just caught a, you know, absolute lunker of a rainbow off the Grand Ronde and it's bass temperatures down there right now. I wouldn't even have expected that this fish to be that low in the system and he did it on on a sculptzilla, and there's sort of a, a trough in the middle of the stream below a riffle that is just a, a place that holds a little bit cooler water that you can expect to find a fish. And um, he went out there and, and uh, yeah, caught a nice fish on a streamer. So it can be done. It can be. But, uh, yeah, anyways, hoppers, right? I mean, that's that's just so tough to beat, especially for – anglers just starting out i don't know if there's a better eat out there on a on a fly anyways you know uh it's super super tough to beat that that style of fishing you know uh since i've lived in montana uh, i've gotten into crane fly fishing you know the last 15 years uh, oh really that's, that's another hatch you don't really hear about uh, over here and i i enjoy it almost as much as i enjoy hopper fishing it's just an incredible i don't know if you guys get many crane flies over there i'm sure plenty of larvae but over here we're skittering those things down and across and i i have watched fish just lose their damn minds <laughs> like travel great distances just to jump on the crane i not necessarily <laughs> but just a belly flop on it and be like not today sir <laughs> And man, I don't know if there's any more fun you can have. And it's just, you know, crane fly fish are just a different caliber of fish. It's just like, no, sir, I eat crane flies and that's it, you know? And it's just <laughs> like these 12 inch fish eating crane flies that are 12 inches, but they're like 10 inches deep, you know? It's like, yeah, you, you eat crane flies. So that's nice. been kind of my, that's been my jam as far as fishing in August, the last, the last, 10 years, you know, it's something that I enjoy and it's just, it, it goes against all the principles of standard fly fishing, you know, you know, mend, 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 dead drift, you know, it's just like you're skating it across a surface like you used to when you're like 10 years old, you know, trying to get little brookies to eat, but things are just giant browns coming after these things. So it's, uh, it's pretty sweet, you know, but uh, that's kind of been my thing. It does not surprise me that you found a an obscure specialized niche of fly fishing to make your own, and uh, that sounds like it's right up your alley. Oh, I got I don't know if you've ever done it, but you, you might just test it um, on the ranch. You know, whether that's tonight or tomorrow, or when you have some free time, and just skitter a crane fly down and across, trail it with a big soft tackle, and just see what happens. You know, I mean, it's not technically. It's like Dry fly fishing mixed with streamer fishing mixed with swinging, you know, it's like <laughs> all good things into one, you know, it's like eating your birthday cake, like all of your birthday cake at once. <laughs> <laughs> well, the crane fly fishing is a really big deal on some of these central Oregon lakes around the bend area, which, you know, I've not gone down there to fish, you know, it's hard for me to leave fish to find fish. 
but if you ever find yourself down there, I think that you might really dig that, you know, it's a different presentation, obviously on still water, but you could figure it out. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely is a different presentation, but uh, yeah, those things are just nuts too. I mean, I think, I think that hatch is so much unknown about that fly. And I think for people that don't know what a crane fly is, you know, a lot of people call them daddy long legs. If you're over in Great Britain, they call them daddy long legs. Uh, growing up in Nevada, you know, we called them mosquito eaters. They look like a giant mosquito and they get caught up in the cobwebs of like your windowsill all the time. And they're just like a giant mosquito. But um, I think, especially in the beaver head where, where I live in Southwest Montana, you know, a lot of the fish eat the larva. Um, and then all that larva is just on logs and rocks underneath undercuts. And you'll see fish. I mean, if you're, if you're really watching, you'll see fish jump up and, or not jump up, but knock, knock the larva off the logs. And I mean, Crane fly larva, you know, underneath a, an indicator or something is pretty deadly in a lot of our tailwaters up here. And just like, it's like a glorified maggot in a way, you know, the larvae <laughs> stage of it. But I mean, those fish, I mean, it's just pure protein. And a lot of those fish, especially on the beaver head, are just eating that larva. But um, when they're on the adults and they'll eat the larva, you know, all year long. But when they're finally on the adult, adults and it seems for us to be in August and September, it's just an exciting way to fish. And man, if you haven't done it, Nash, we gotta we gotta get you back to Montana, man, and, and just do it. It's just it's just kid stuff, you know. You just giggle the whole time. You're not really you miss like 80% of the fish, but you just can't wait for the next time something chases it down, you know. So that sounds good. That sounds like it's right up my alley. Well, let's uh let's introduce you, Adam, so that people know uh who they're listening to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm Adam Hutchison. Um, I live in Southwest Montana. I work for a fly fishing company called uh, RL Winston Rod Company. Uh, I've been with Winston for about 10 years. I've done several different jobs. You know, I started off in production and worked my way up through customer service, became a sales associate, uh, worked social media marketing and marketing. And now I'm uh, uh, the national director or national sales and marketing manager for the brand uh, for both Winston for Winston and then do a lot of, of advisement for Bauer Reels as well. But it's been a it's been a wild ride and you know a very historic brand. So it's uh, but I mean I do I fish a lot, but uh, just kind of an all around outdoorsman as well. You know, and archery hunting is still a big part of your life. You're a traditional traditional bow shooter. Yeah, shoot uh, shoot several different traditional bows right now. I uh, shot a Jerry Hill longbow for years. Jerry is uh, the long lost nephew of Howard Hill, so he's based his longbow designs off of Howard's, which is is pretty unique. So he's he makes a unique bow, and I don't think he's making bows anymore. But uh, it's definitely it's a good shooting bow. It's something I've shot for almost twenty years, and just kind of. I just recently bought a Black Widow recurve too. And that's, you know, if you know, widows are super smooth and uh, really easy to shoot, very little stack. Um, but uh, yeah, been a traditional bow hunter basically my whole life. Uh, hunt plenty with rifle. That's the beauty of living in Montana. If uh, I don't make it happen with the struggle stick, I certainly get that uh, second season to go, go in with the boomstick and, and take care of business. But uh 
it's funny, like my wife always says, it's, there's a divide. And she's like, it happens about August 20th, you know, or, or maybe August 15th or August 1st or right around August. She's like, you, you kind of transition from fishing to bow hunting. You know, it's like that nat- natural progression of, of focus. And, you know, if I get an early season uh, buck tag, uh, that focus happens a little bit sooner. But I've I've been lucky enough the last couple of years to go down south and hunt muleys, but uh, uh, we're definitely full blown uh, getting ready for elk hunting coming up here in September. So that's that's super exciting as well. So, and one of the funnest hunts I've ever been on in my life was a traditional archery bow hunt for mule deer in central Nevada with you. Yeah, that, I mean, I I mean, so much has changed since since that trip, right? I mean. Uh, you were you were accepted into off uh, Marines Officer School. Um, I was a I'm, I hadn't met my now wife yet, so we were just a couple of young bucks, you know, relatively free to go off and and do things, and you know, just haven't really experienced life. But man, that was such an epic trip, you know. I mean, oh, it was awesome. I mean, I. There were so many bucks that year. I mean, it, we had to kind of pick our stocks, you know, especially with traditional tackle. And I remember one was three quarters of the way down the mountain and it was a nice buck. And I was just like, I don't know. And you're just like, if you don't go down there and kill that buck, I'm going to break your longbow right now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I, you know, I manned up and went down there and got close and rolled a rock and the buck uh, proceeded to go over like 10 ridges. and I had to walk back up, but, uh, do you remember the chipmunk? Yeah. The chipmunk that, you know, that buck stopped or, you know, he kind of looked up, he switched beds, looked up and then I just got into the shadow of the rim above him. And that chipmunk ran down my shoulder and stopped on my boot. And that buck was just looking at me like, well, that's definitely not a predator because there's a chipmunk, <laughs> that weird looking rock, you know, so, uh, uh, so hilarious. So I'm way up on this ridge, you know, 1400 yards away watching Adam and this deer in a spotting scope. And when you're watching somebody sneak up on a deer from long ways away, when they're 50 yards away, it looks like they're right there. Like, so for the longest time, I'm like, just shoot him, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> are you going to grab him? Like what's happening? And then you, know, you get closer and closer and closer. And you know, all this very, very precision stalking is going on. And then the sun just got around to the point where this buck had to get up and change positions. And instead of looking downhill, now he's looking uphill and, and you were in a good spot to sit there and wait. So you just froze and then this chipmunk decided to run all over you. <laughs> yeah, man, that's uh that's traditional bow hunting 101, right? I mean, God, you're successful very little. I mean, there's some there's some guys that do it very well, certainly better than me, but uh you have experiences with with longbows and recurves that otherwise you probably may not have, you know, whereas uh you know, 50 yards is usually good enough. You know, for me, it's certainly not. Um, and I uh, have to get much closer. And then, then you experience things like chip, chipmunks and, you know, all, all kinds of other things, you know. And uh, it's certainly uh, certainly a fun way to hunt. And, you know, if, if you're patient and 
at it long enough, you certainly find success. Uh, uh, but uh, man, that was such a fun hunt. I mean, we saw we saw a buck up there that I'd seen like four years uh, in a row before before you came up and hunted, and that that was a special buck um, as well. And, and we saw a super. Remember the old buck that we saw? Uh, yeah, we saw that super old buck that was regressing. And uh, yeah, we saw a three legged coyote at over ten thousand feet elevation. Yeah, I mean that was we we saw that herd of like 12, 12 bucks. And, you know, there was like one buck that was kind of delegated to direct sunlight. (laughs) (laughs) Never was good enough for the, for the deep shade, you know, but man, that was such a, such a memorable hunt. You know, that was so much fun. And I stopped, I stopped on the way down. Um, and I can't remember, it might've been an Elko or something like that. And I got sushi for some stupid reason. <laughs> Remember in the first place that we went to go hunt, we were sneaking up on deer, like trying to slip in to these rims. And I was like, burp, like, you know, started getting bubbly. I was like, Adam, don't turn around. Just keep going. I'm sorry for what's about to happen. <laughs> That's a pro tip for everybody out there. Don't get sushi in Elko, Nevada. Right. Yeah, definitely not. Because every 15 minutes I was having to just spray down some freaking sagebrush. And, uh, <laughs> and like that's kind of, that country is, there's nothing out there. I mean, it's just like rim rock and scrub sage and that's it. So you're just in the sun, you know, dealing with yeah. it. So. Oh, it was, it was so terrible. So we get good and dehydrated and then move on to the next mountain range And then that is the point where, you know, you'd had to pack water in there previously because, you know, there's, there's no water up on top for, for humans to consume. I don't know what the deer were doing. And yeah, so we're, we're living up there at high elevation with, with all these insanely big deer and, uh, you know, it, it was, it was a struggle. We really had a budget with water. We had a budget with food and one of the coolest stocks of that entire thing. And, and again, like this sounds like nothing but bloopers and it kind of was, but there's this great big deer that started to come up through this pass. And we'd seen him go through this pass a couple times over a couple days, kind of morning and evening. He was traveling through it. And there was this big sort of low um, pinion juniper thing right on top. And you, you hauled butt down this ridge and got behind this juniper and I'm sitting up on top watching the show again and this this great big buck old old deer he comes up and he comes straight up to the other side of the juniper so now you're only one tree apart and (laughs) and like you're both staring at each other through this tree but neither of you can see each other and this show for me is just incredible to watch. You know, I can't handle the suspense. And then simultaneously, Adam turns to the right and the deer turns to the right. And they just walk around the tree, completely mirroring each other. Both of you being so stealthy and quiet. And then as soon as you'd done 180 degrees around that tree, that deer smelled where you'd just been and bailed off. And I was like, oh my gosh, so amazing. It is a blooper reel, man, for sure. But God, that was, oh, such a great trip. And I think my brother came up after after you did. And we went back up there and had a good time. Uh, no success that trip. But uh, yeah, that's 
just that was that's one of the, I mean I can't believe that was over ten years ago already. You know, it's it's amazing how fast time flies. Yes, it does. Well, let's shift gears back to fly fishing a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. This year, there's been more interest in fly fishing than I've seen in a long time, and I think you know there's there's a lot going on, but people's plans got changed, so they had to they had to shift to to improvisation a little bit. And a lot of folks turn to fishing. Fishing license sales are way up in Oregon. They're way up in Montana. And I'm sure they are in other states as well. And as people get into this, they're trying to figure out, you know, what kind of gear they need. And, you know, it's it can be really intimidating. And what what I recommend to people is to get the best stuff that they can afford so that as their skill grows, that they don't grow out of their gear. Um what should people look for in a fly rod? Like what, what features of a fly rod, what construction? I mean, there, there's like IM8 and you know, all this stuff. It's, it doesn't mean anything to, to somebody who isn't sort of bred into it. So can you kind of talk through the construction of a fly rod and, and what features are good or bad or help you in different situations? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many great rods out there. You know, that's the first thing I'm going to say to anybody. And, you know, I'm dyed in the wool Winston green, um, up here in twin bridges, but you know, I'm, I'm going to start off by saying that there's an awful lot of great fly rods out there and fly reels that, you know, you don't have to have to break a budget to get into it and enjoy it, you know, but you're exactly right. You know, I think, I think it comes down to, you know, and that's as the sales manager here at Winston, that's something I'm trying to decipher, you know, and I don't know how to answer it uh, for Winston. You know, we have, like you said, uh, Nash, there's a ton of new anglers. I mean, it's a huge upswing, right? And shops are reporting record number of people coming in and buying gear and uh, price point and uh, kit uh, rods and reels are certainly sold out just about anywhere. Like we can't, every nine foot five weight that we're making at Winston is essentially sold, you know, as it's coming through. So we're building it, inspecting it, putting it in a box and shipping it out. But, you know, there's a lot of great rods. And I, I suppose the first question, some uh, a new angler or a beginning angler needs to ask themselves is how are you, where do you fish? And how do you, how, how do you like to fish? You know, after going through this year, you know, what did you really enjoy about it? Because there's a lot of niche rods out there, you know. Um, if you just like, um, if you like a kind of a do-all type of trout rod, it's it's tough to beat a nine foot five weight or a nine foot six weight. You know, probably faster action. A faster action is going to allow you to move from. And I'm, when I say fast action, I'm not talking about a stiff rod that feels like you're casting a two by four. I'm talking about a rod graphite that recovers fairly quickly. You know, you still want, you still want rods to load. So, you know, the better a rod loads, the more feedback it gives to you, you know? Um, And that's what fly fishing is all about is understanding the feedback the rod gives to you and, and um, understanding what that means. Uh, Everybody has different casting strokes and, and needs so understanding those needs. So if you're if you're buying an all-around trout rod, probably a five or a six weight, generally in nine feet. You know, our old rod designer jokes that uh, the only reason nine foot rods exist is because fly fishing guides needed them. You know, for 
for tougher clients. So, I mean, an eight and a half, oh, interesting. A, nine, a nine foot rod uh, is really a good versatile rod. Now, if you're fishing smaller water, if you have smaller water and that's going to be your primary source, uh, a shorter rod, like an eight and a half rod might be good. So just kind of evaluating how you're going to be fishing most of the time. You know, do you have a local river or creek or a bass pond, you know, and understanding those needs. So buying a rod uh, based on those needs. So if you're in Montana uh, or in Oregon, you're fishing bigger water, you know, nine foot rod um, is is a good choice because it's going to give you the options to lift line off the off the water for better mending. The uh, nine foot rod is a nice size lever. Usually the longer the lever, or the length of the rod, the further you can cast. Um, some things that longer rods don't necessarily do great are accuracy up close. You know, there's not as much feel and feedback. I, you know, I kind of compare it to choking up on a baseball bat. You know, the shorter, the more you choke up on a bat, the faster you're going to swing it. And same same with a, a shorter rod. You know, an eight and a half rod is going to have a lighter swing weight. Um, and up close, it's going to be more accurate. So if you're fishing smaller water, eight and a half is a good choice. Nine is still pretty good uh, if you're traveling out to Montana. Maybe you fish home your home waters, which are generally smaller, or you come to Montana or Oregon or Washington and you fish bigger water. You know, an eight and a half or a nine is going to be good. But I think just evaluating your needs, um, you know, how you're going to be fishing most of the time. That's what I tell our customers. It's the first thing I ask them. I'm like, how are you going to be fishing most of the time? You know. Let's let's get the 80 percent of the time out of the way and make sure you're covered for most of it. And, you know, fly rod, once you as you get into it, you kind of get that rod to take care of it all. And as you get into it, you can buy smaller, smaller rods, you know, six and a half, seven foot three weights for for little brookie creeks. Uh, you can buy nine and a half foot rods as spe specialized nymphing tools. Uh, you can buy a fast, super fast, uh, aggressive rods for streamers. So you just kind of add your quiver as you get into it. But I think for people getting into it, a good solid five, five weight or six weight that has a moderate to fast action is, is a good investment. And just to just to gauge, you know, if that's something that you're going to continue on on with in the future. So and when you say investment like this, a fly rod can last for a very long time, but more than likely at some point it it meets catastrophe, you know, whether that's in the form of, you know, you stepping on it or, you know, slamming it in a car door or, or whatever. So it, it can be a, a lot of money if, if it's just something that's going to break. Right. No, I mean, totally. And I mean that you see in the fly fishing industry, just about every rod manufacturer offers a lifetime warranty on their rod. Now, what that means, a lot of people confuse lifetime warranty for free rod repair. And that's, that's definitely not the case. There's essentially a, a deductible is the way I would, I would call it. Whether you step on it, you smash it in the window, uh, you snag it in the willows, whatever. For us, it's a $75 administrative fee. And that covers our cost or labor cost to actually build a new section. So at Winston, we completely build a brand new section. We don't repair the section. We don't use super glue here at Winston. We'll just build a brand new section. <laughs> Custom fit it on the original rod and then you're make sure it fits, you know, it, it fits, it casts good. And then, then you're on the way. So, um, so that, that $75 goes towards, you know, the person that uh, answer answers the repair phone call, you know, the person that 
uh, puts in labor and then also shipping shipping charges back to you. So that's what that entails. And, you know, I think depending on the rod company, it usually varies from 50 bucks to maybe a hundred bucks, depending on, on the rod company. Um, if you buy a Winston secondhand for us, say you buy a rod off of eBay from a guy selling his old, his old Winston, uh, say you break it, as long as we're still able to repair it, we'll still repair it, won't be covered under warranty, but standard repair fees will come in. And it's generally, uh, the repair fees are generally about the same cost as buying a new low-end type of fly rod. So um, we're pretty versatile. There's some rods that, you know, Winston and maybe other brands can't fix, but uh, that's the investment. You know, the more, the more you invest up front with a premium brand, uh, obviously the more performance and specified performance you get out of a fly rod, but also um, kind of that uh, brand standing behind that product and being able to take care of you with great customer service and attention to detail um, as that rod gets repaired. So that's that's part of the investment uh, of getting a premium type of fly rod out of the gate. So, And I, I really appreciate that explanation and that honesty. I think a lot of people get a little bit entitled about, about how they approach warranties. And I wish that folks would sort of flip the table around on themselves and think, okay, if, if this was my business, what would be the fairest way for me to go about making sure that this customer was, was honestly and appropriately serviced and satisfied. And the, the reality is if, you know, you buy a rod as a kid and you break that thing half a dozen times in your life, which is really reasonable, you know, that, that company still needs to make money off that and they need to stay whole, but they, they need to keep you satisfied as a customer as well. So paying a service fee or, or a repair fee is just an honest way to go about doing it. And that's something that should be a fair expectation from a customer. I think so. I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, I've been, I don't know much about the optics business, but you see brands like just about everybody now in, in the optics lineup that they'll, it seems like they'll just replace it regardless if you're the original owner or not. And I'm just scratching my head wondering how these guys are getting by and what, you know, what their MOQs and margins are on these things. It must be, must be fantastic. But for, for I mean, we're talking about graphite, right? That that's really when you roll it on a, mandrel it's paper thin so when that that graphite resin system cures you're talking about a, especially in the tip section you know you're talking about a very this very thin layer of graphite that i mean you look at look at graphite wrong sometimes it seems like it may break but uh, uh i mean that's just kind of like you said it's the nature of of fly rods i mean when you're talking graphite thin graphite material you know um things, things happen. It's just, a, it's just, I mean, I, I, if you haven't broken a fly rod in your life, I mean, have you really fly fished? That's my question. You know? Yeah, no, no, you have not. And you've certainly never fly fished with, um, Doug, for example, <laughs> man. I mean, that guy, he's, he's the ultimate client. I'll tell you that. <laughs> We're talking about Adam's little brother here. <laughs> God, I love him though. He's, he is the life of the party, but man, it's funny. Like I, I enjoy fishing with Doug, you know, uh, more than just about anybody. And we have just a, a great time, but 
you know, he's maybe three and a half years younger than me, but I mean, we're, we're both in our thirties. So, you know, we're, my philosophy is if you're in your thirties, whether you're 31 or 39, nine, you're the same age, you know, but <laughs> when we go fly fishing together, uh, I'm definitely the older brother, you know, and I can, I can, it's one time nowadays that I can tell him what to do and when to do it, you know, and he abides by that, by that law. You know, so. <laughs> You know, I just got to get him rowing on the sticks a little bit so uh, I can enjoy myself a little bit. But uh, yeah, that's yeah, you're you're exactly right. Yeah, Doug uh, Doug tends to tends to be the life and the comedy relief in the drift boat these days for sure. So, well, we had a pretty tight new, pretty tight knit group of friends uh, going through college, and we all spent a lot of time hunting and fishing together. A, a lot of time, so much time. In fact, that I'm pretty sure that all of us spent an entire extra year in college because of the amount of fly fishing that we had done in the previous four years. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we'd, I mean, it was typical college years, right? We'd, we'd be out all night long, but up at four in the morning to go fish Clark Canyon, you know, at first light, you know, and man, those, those were the days for sure. You know, absolutely. So, you know, we talked about crane flies as sort of an emerging type of technique or, or a hatch that people haven't been thinking about and a presentation style and, and fly selection that isn't, isn't really well, well thought about or well known. And I think maybe the, the absolute classic thing that people think of when they're talking about fly fishing is a rainbow trout um, coming up to the surface eating a dry fly, uh, you're on some kind of a freestone river mountain in the background like that. That's the image that a lot of people have. What are some emerging fisheries around the world that are starting to get attention? Oh man. Uh, you know, I think it's funny. I think saltwater is really growing saltwater fishing. Obviously there's been people fly fishing in the salt for for a lot of years, uh, but saltwater fishing is something that, you know, not even hardcore anglers do. I mean, a lot of people will put a salt trip down to Belize or Mexico or um, wherever wherever it is that they're going. Uh, you know, one for trout, one thing that's really starting to stand up is Iceland. And that's, that's on my bucket list. You know, those browns up there are just they're beautiful. They're huge. I, I don't know if there's anywhere more beautiful than Iceland, you know, um, that's, that's on my short list. Uh, but I mean, uh, Iceland's kind of emerging as, uh, emerging as a destination, um, you know, uh, South America for a lot of different things, jungle fishing, certainly, you know, in the past six or seven years, you know, whether it's for peacock bass or golden Dorado or Arapaima, um, vampire fish, whatever it may be. I mean, the jungle is, you know, maybe that's the new emerging type of destination where it's really an adventure. Um, you get a lot of the indigenous stuff down there, uh, that's makes it really unique. Uh, the fish eat a fly like crazy down there. You know, you're fishing for golden Dorado and these gin clear little tropical streams and, they eat it like a trout streamer, but they're just five times as big as a, as a brown trout. And 
they're uh, it's just it's a, it's a that's a cool setting and it's a place where you're fishing in the tracks of jaguars uh you could get stung by a stingray so you have to wear stingray shin guards and uh gators and that sort of thing so really fishing in the jungle for those exotic type of species is really starting to emerge and you see a lot more lodges and motherships pop up here and there you know one of my favorite operations that i'm I'm, I'm hopefully going to go to once all this clears up is nomadic waters out of Brazil. And uh, Michael Williams is kind of the main oper operator out of there. He's a Winston pro and uh, kind of a shout out to Michael. He, he does a lot of really unique stuff and they fish out of skiffs, but I mean, they fish a lot of flooded timber and it's just stripping big streamers for these huge peas. And I mean, he runs a really unique operation. He has a guy, he's got a beautiful mothership. Uh, with all the accommodations and bells and whistles, and you really couldn't beat or meet a nicer guy to run it either. So he does a lot of stuff for uh, the local people in uh, in Brazil. Um, hires local local guys for for guides and stuff, and donates a certain percentage of of his profits go back into to the local villages and community back there. So he runs a great operation. But man, certainly the guys that Untamed Angling have really done a done an amazing job. They have a several different locations. So, uh, jungle fishing is really kind of that that attractive new thing uh, for anglers to do, especially in the in the past eight years. It seems that's really starting to blow up. So, and, and part of what you're you're cheesing at here that I'm seeing in in really all aspects of of the outdoors is that there's an increasing amount of focus on the things outside of the main event. Like if you want to go fish for Arapaima, there's so much adventure just in getting to a place where you can catch an Arapaima that the, the actual fishing may end up being a footnote to the adventure overall. Exactly. I mean, and even with trout stuff, uh, you look at, you look at trout fishing and 10 years ago when we were in college, like, you could probably stay with one rod series from a manufacturer and you could get a three weight, you could get a five weight and a seven weight and be covered for just about, and this is in the same rod family, right? But now brands are making like specific rods for jungle fishing. You know, uh, you see specific trout spay rods for trout fishing now, you know, and I mean, that's, that's taken over the past 10 years. So you see a lot more specialty in fly fishing these days. You know, it's not just, oh, I'm going to buy a six weight for all my trout fishing. I'm going to buy an eight weight for steelhead, you know, and then I'll have, you know, but got, you know, people are really starting to buy specific tools for very specific applications, you know, whether that's trout fishing or, you know, going down to Brazil or Argentina or wherever it may be. So there's a lot more specialty these days, you know. Let's talk about the people's fish. Okay. And I, I'd say that there's, there's two fish that are the people's fish. One of them is near and dear to me. The other one is near and dear to practically everyone else in the world. But the first one is the mountain whitefish, my lady. <laughs> yes. Are people starting to show her a little bit more respect in Montana or no? Oh uh, yeah, for sure. And you know, we've talked about this quite a bit, you know, the more whitefish you see in a river system, the healthier the river and, you know, I think locals, uh, especially in Montana, really regard the whitefish, you know, and 
honestly, they can take a slow August day uh, that would otherwise be a slow August day and, you know, make, make it a great day. And, you know, whitefish are fantastic on the, on the fly rod. They, they fight very well. They don't seem to tire out as quickly as a lot of trout do when the water temps get a little bit warmer. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're definitely more regarded. You know, I, I think when people come up and buy a guided trip that they all dream of uh, the two foot brown trout or, you know, the rainbow that cartwheels eight times when they set the hook. You know, I think I think that's the dream. But the reality is whitefish is um, and the thing about whitefish is it's a native fish. You know, it's been here long before Lewis and Clark came through our area, you know. So, I mean, it's it should be you see a lot more, you see stickers, you know, you see white, white fish lives matter stickers from different outfitters and, you know, kind of playing off that, Hey, white fish are important. You know, they're a fun fish. And when you get white fish eating flies on top, they're definitely a challenge. You know, they have a smaller mouth and when they're focused on trichos or something like that on the edge of foam, certainly fun and a challenging fish on top as well. So uh, yeah, you see, you see that popularity, their popularity growing, you know, more so than it was maybe 10 or 15 years ago for sure. So, and here in Oregon, and I would say many places, West Slope, whitefish are the only native game fish that we have that's never been through a hatchery program. So they're the only real native fish that we have left. Everything else has been genetically tampered. That's right. They're in it for the long haul, man. I mean, they're just, they have that ability to survive different type of types of environmental conditions, you know, whether, whether it's a high water year or a drought year, I mean, they, they really have that adaptability that really speaks toward, uh, speaks toward them as a, as a game fish in all reality. And, you know, if the beautiful thing about whitefish too, is that they smoke up really well, you know? So, um, I mean, that's kind of a benefit too, that, they're the delicious table fare if people want to take a few home, you know? So, yep. They're tremendous table fare. They are a salmonid. So people often say, well, they're very bony. Like, yeah, they are, but they have the same exact bone structure as a trout salmon or steelhead. So they're, they're, they're not a sucker. Their mouth is not on the bottom. You know, it's a forward facing mouth. And when people hook up, you know, Oftentimes it's the biggest fish that they catch of the day and they fight hard. They're very willing to take a fly and people are having just a gas of a time. And then you get that fish in the net and they go, Oh, it's a white fish. It's like, <laughs> well, what, what, what changed? Nothing yeah. changed. Um, this is a native fish that just about whooped you on your nine foot five weight. And, uh, you know, you're, you're going to like poo poo it because it's mouth is shaped funny. Like, come on, get real. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you look at their gill plates too, and they get that really cool rosy color when they start to spawn. And I think they have a, have a beauty all their own in a lot of regards. You know, it's like, it's like a, a grayling and a rainbow kind of just had sex and out came. I mean, that's, that's kind of what it is, or maybe a grayling and a bonefish, you know, really they have a lot of similarities to saltwater bonefish, you know, than, totally than anything. And yeah, I think that they're super cool and underappreciated, but you do see, you, you do see a lot of, you know, there's 
definitely been a growing appreciation for that species, you know, as, as conservation movements have, have grown over the past decade. So. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that because there's definitely both guides and clients that treated those fish poorly, you know, a decade ago. And I'm glad that people are coming around a little bit. So the other fish that, that I call the soccer of fish is the common carp. So the common carp is the most fished for fish in the world and the most eaten fish in the world. And it has long held very low regard in the United States, a lot like soccer. (laughs) But unlike soccer or unlike soccer players, carp are not wimps. Carp are an absolutely tough, tough animal. And they're available all over the place is, is carp fishing continuing to increase in popularity? You know, it had a surge for a while. It absolutely is. In fact, I know guys and people in California that would tell you where to go catch a two foot brown trout before they would, before they would give up their carp spot, you know? So, I mean, there's definitely, I think carp are an extremely, difficult species to catch, especially on the fly. You know, they're very picky. They're very meticulous about what they're eating and how they're eating. And uh, when they finally eat, uh, they behave more like a saltwater fish than they do a freshwater fish. You know, they don't have, um, they're, they're, it seems like the warmer the water, the better they are when it comes to, uh, when it comes to fighting them on a rod. Um, but you sight fish them differently. You know, it's a very, it's a very different game. And, um, I mean, talk about the ways to catch them, whether you're using conventional tackle or fly tackle or your bowfish angler, whatever it may be. I mean, carp provides so much opportunity to sportsmen and, uh, that alone is just, fantastic. You know, a buddy of mine and I were talking last week about a carp on the beaver head that, that he caught. And, uh, I guess they nymphed it up like, like you do any trout on any kind of blue ribbon in Montana. And he thought it was the biggest, it was going to be the biggest brown trout that he's ever caught of his life. And they get it close to the boat and notices that it's a carp. And he got what he told me, he's like, I was way more excited. Uh, that it was a carp than it than it was a big brown because it's they're they're just as tough if not tougher to catch. Uh, they're fantastic game. They're fan. They're just they're just a great fish. You know they're they're amazing and it's it's just prov- provides a different challenge um, and a skill set than than standard trout fishing in the West. And man, they, they're really you can catch them just about any way you want to catch them. You know. So I would tell people if you're fishing in a tailwater someplace and your greatest hope is that you're going to turn up an 18 inch rainbow or brown trout and you, you know, you're throwing a, you know, number 47 <laughs> trico on, a, you know, 11 X tippet or whatever. Um, you know, that that's cool. That's cool. If that's the thing that you're into, but if you drive around that dam and you go to the top end of that reservoir and pull out your eight weight and some kind of little brown poofy carp pattern and get out there in that, in that mud flat and start hunting for carp, you could hook into a 20 or 30 pound carp that 
you know, is higher in pounds than you were previously hoping for in inches. And if you hook up to that fish, he might break you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, totally. Like, for, I mean, forget about your 11X tippet. I mean, <laughs> what, I mean, you need to, that's like straight mono. It's like, you, you know, but I mean, they're, that, that's the thing with them is that they're smart. So it's not like you can just use heavy, heavy mono. I mean, they're, they're leader shy, um, you know, so that you have to have perfect presentation when you're catching them on a the fly, you know? So, I mean, they're a unique species, you know, and you see, you see more and more people buying saltwater style skiffs for these reservoirs and they're just bypassing the trout water and going to these, these types of uh, reservoirs and sight fishing carp, you know, and it's, it's a great way to get away from people because, you know, there's very few, you, you'll see a lot fewer anglers. Uh, you're, like you said, you're catching bigger fish. Um, it's a challenge. It's a hoot. You get to see your backing, you know, actually <laughs> that's pretty cool. You know, just about every carp, you know, will show you your backing and man, it's just like, wow, I, I forgot that there was backing on there. And that's, you know, that's always a plus and, but man, it's so much fun, you know, it's so much fun. And, uh, it, it I think people, I mean, you see a lot of people in my home state of Nevada, take it very seriously, but like they're super secretive of it. You know, and I'll be like, you got that at location X, right? And they're like, I'm not telling you. There's a dude. poker face ever. So you can't get anything out of them. But yeah. Um, yeah. What a species, man. And uh, grow, still growing in popularity. I mean, there's, there's play, there's waters here in Montana. Well, they'll happily eat like a Chevy Chernobyl off the top for a hopper or something like that. And, uh, I mean, it's just not like fishing crayfish or weird patterns on the bottom. There's certainly dry fly opportunities for, for those big fish as well. So that's awesome. There's a dude in downtown Phoenix and I think his handle is low water guide on Instagram and I haven't fished with him, but I follow him. Um, but he is guiding trips in downtown Phoenix for carp in these canals and stuff that go through town. Like <laughs> that sounds awesome to me of course that place is you know the same temperature as the surface of the sun for most most of the year but you know if you're down there on a business trip or you're one of the 25 million people that live there like why not get out and fish in the middle of town and try and catch one of these you know big golden giants it sounds fun to me Totally, man. You see it in a lot of urban spots. It's super popular, right? So, I mean, Phoenix is good. I mean, the LA River in Los Angeles, that's another spot where, you know, uh, dedicated fly anglers, you know, that can't get, can't get to the uh, Eastern Sierras every weekend. I mean, it's something that's right out their back, their back door, you know, that they can, it provides opportunity. You know, uh, I have a friend in, in, um, in Colorado, in Denver, same thing, you know, the plaque goes through Denver and his name is Rick Mike Soli. He works for Trout's Fly Fishing and Rick is all about carp fishing. And it's just so entertaining to see his, his feed and how he's fishing them. I mean, he's got, you know, it cracks me up. He's got the European setups, you know, too, where it has like the, the bells and everything. So he's just not fly fishing for him, but he's got that European type of uh, beepers and stuff. So what if, when a carp eats, it starts going off and man, it's just, it's just an interesting way 
to catch fish. I mean, again, like you can catch them any way you really want, you know, and you, can you really ask for more than that? You know, I watched a video of a guy who had hooked up um, a big bag of popcorn to a leaf blower. (laughs) 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 Like this is so far departed from sort of the, you know, the highbrow dry fly only all natural materials trout fly fishing. So he'd hooked up like this big bag of popcorn to a leaf blower and it was just going, ah, and like spreading popcorn all over the surface of this lake. And he created a feeding frenzy of these gigantic carp. And then he put on his popcorn pattern and just had himself a ball. Man, you could tie popcorn patterns pretty easily too. I think so. I think I could. I think that's a fly that I could accomplish um, fairly successfully. You know, what I would do is I would just buy like a size uh, eight dry fly hook, you know, or size six dry fly hook and just thread a piece of popcorn on there and just (laughs) there you go. put on some like uh, super glue and and, popcorn fly, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Man. no, that's uh, that's the kind of fishing that that I can get behind. I mean, I can get behind any kind of fishing. Let's be honest, but that sounds like a good time to me. Um, anything else come to mind? Any other cool opportunities in the world that people aren't really thinking of quite yet? You know, I, I briefly mentioned uh, micro or you know microspace fishing for trout. That is uh, that's just a super fun way to approach trout fishing. You know, if if you kind of get tired or bored of your typical nine foot five weight and whether using indicators or dry dropper, or however you're catching it provides an opportunity to catch trout or even smallmouth in a unique way where you're actually swinging, swinging a fly for trout. And, you know, I enjoy it because it passes the time between steelhead trips for me, you know, and it's just a different eat. It's like, you know, like we talked about crane flies before, you know, a swung, fly, a swung trout, whether it's a 10 incher or a 20 incher, it's such a different eat, you know, it's a, it, they just sting it so hard and it, it's just a fun way and a new way to approach the river, you know, I mean, whether you're swinging soft tackles or uh, trout spay style flies, it's, it's a really fun way uh to approach trout fishing and then it kind of keeps you on par with your salmon and steelhead spay fishing skills, you know? And so that's, that's something else to consider. And then you have the whole high sticking Euro nymphine, French nymphine type of uh, revolution that's, that's been going on for maybe the past 10 years. And uh, if, if guys have kind of gotten tired of indicators and gone to this tight line style of, of nymphine and, um, just some guys are super tactical and uh, they're just, they're just deadly with those setups, you know, and I I don't know if there's a more, um, I don't know if there's a more effective way to catch trout than someone who's skilled in that style of fishing, you know, so that's really come on as well. But uh, gosh, there's just about, there's so many different ways to catch trout. It's amazing. But I would say, you know, and that's one of my most, my favorite ways to catch trout these days is just take the microspay out. You're not there for numbers, but the casting, the way the fish eat the fly is certainly just a, a great way, a great way to fish and approach the river. So, 
Yeah, and another thing that I really appreciate about this spay presentation, whether it's for steelhead or salmon or trout or whatever, um, you know, if, if somebody's got bad shoulders, if, if you've got some arm injuries anywhere, this is going to take so much stress off of your body over, you know, a day or even an hour of fishing. You know, you can extend the type of fishing you do so much later in life if you start to learn these spay techniques and, and pick this stuff up. Oh, totally. I mean, absolutely. And then it not only that, but it helps you approach water that you may not have been able to touch before. You know, it allows you to cast an awful long way. So, I mean, if let's say you can access the river at a certain point, but you can't get to the other side, but there's a juicy looking run or um, riffle on that other side, you know, uh, spay fishing opens that water up, you know, in a lot of different ways. I mean, you see guys using spay rods on bigger still water, uh, still water places. Uh, it's weird if you go to Pyramid Lake in Nevada and not see someone using a switch or a small spay rod, um, you know, dangling balance leeches and chronomids underneath an indicator out there. I mean, that's kind of the standard now out there just because it allows you to cast so much, so much line out there and hit those drop-off points without, you know, putting a ladder out there or working your tail off double hauling to, to get to the ledge, you know? So, I mean, they, they really open up water in a, in a different way that hasn't been available before. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. Shifting gears again. I'm about to take off in a little over a month for my very first mountain goat hunt. And (laughs) you had quite a mountain goat hunt yourself. So what advice do you have for me going into a goat hunt? You know, it's, it's really simple. Just enjoy it. You know, uh, just, just enjoy it because they're, they're, I mean, I don't know how I feel about spirit animals, but if I had a spirit animal, it'd be a goat, a mountain goat for sure. I think that they live in the toughest places anything can live. You know, Um, they are magnificent. They're authentically American, uh, North American, I should say, but I, you know, other than getting in great tremendous shape and spending some planning to spend a lot of time behind glass, but you're going to Alaska. So, I mean, you're going to Kodiak. So, I mean, there's a lot more goats on Kodiak Island than, than the place where I hunted in Southwest Montana. Uh, so I, I think that'll be easier, but I mean, you're still going to be spending a lot of time behind glass. Um, just, and besides getting in shape, enjoy it. I mean, it's, you're hunting a unique place for a very unique critter you know, they present, I mean, there were so many challenge, so many times during my hunt where I could have gotten relatively close to a, to a, a billy, but uh, I mean, they're on a sure face. And if I were to kill that billy, I wasn't going to recover them. So, I mean, that's a unique challenge. You know, I had to pass up stocks just because of the country they live in. And uh, it's just, I think, just enjoy it. You know, not everybody gets to hunt goats in their lifetime. And that's how I approach my hunt. You know, I was lucky enough to draw my tag with very few preference points. And, you know, before my dad passed, we talked about, I mean, that's one of the hunts we talked about a lot. And, you know, we, we talked about like, oh, you know, make sure, you know, he's just like, just make sure you enjoy it, you know, and, and you do everything you can um, from scouting 
to preparation to actually just being in that moment, you know, on a knob, on a ridge, away from everything to uh, just enjoy, enjoy the fact that you're hunting goats, you know, so that's, that's the advice I give. And it's, I'm super excited for you, man. That's going to be good. Are you going to hunt with your bow or are you going to take uh, take a rifle? How are you planning on, on hunting? I'm going to be using the six hour cross rifle and I'll be using an, uh, uh, a pistol that's, that's not quite out yet. It's still actually in development as we speak. Um, because there, there are some bears there that are bigger than my future. And I've got to, <laughs> <laughs> I've got to tromp through uh, quite a bit of alders and willows before I can get into goat country. And I'm, I'm told that there are these big like tunnels through that, that thick brush that, uh, that are the bear tunnels and that it's very tempting to walk through those, but you don't know if you're going um, against the flow of traffic, if you will, if you get in those tunnels. <laughs> Volkswagen bus is in there waiting for you, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With or without a sense of humor. Oh man. I mean, bears, I mean, talk about an animal that's pretty much recovered in my opinion. I mean, geez, I, it seems like when we were in college 13 years ago, however long it's been, uh, there were very, you didn't really hardly hear of any grizzlies, but now they're not only in Alaska anymore or in Yellowstone, you know, they're just practically everywhere. So, yeah, no, I mean, I saw pictures of bears, um, of grizzly bears in Oregon this year. I just posted a picture of a grizzly bear in Northern California that was in July of this year. <laughs> um, yeah. And actually that, that California bear, it, uh, it looks like the bear on the California flag, which is <laughs> hilarious. No <laughs> <laughs> oh man. But any, I mean, back to goats. I mean, I'm so stoked for you, man. I mean, that was a lifetime hunt with me. And if I never get a chance to hunt goats again, you know, uh, it's something I'll always remember and, you know, and hunt it how you want to hunt it. That's the other advice I would give you. I mean, uh, make sure you you kind of dictate how how that opportunity plays out, you know, and stick to your guns on that. And uh, I mean, that's what I did. And I mean, I've got a great story to go along with with the Billy I was able to harvest. And um, yeah, I mean, it's something I will I will always remember as well. So super stoked that you get to hunt goats. Uh, you know, we saw when we fished with you several years ago, we saw tons of goats on the Grand Ronde. It was right after I hunted them. And that's just uh, that's a that's a pretty cool uh, pretty cool place to see goats too. But uh, yes, when do you go down there in September? Yeah, September twenty seventh. So I'll leave here and go guide three weeks of archery, and I'll go straight from archery camp to to Kodiak. So I'm I'm incredibly excited about it. You know, I've I've read every every book that I can get my hands on. I'm blown up biologists, and and they're probably getting tired of me talking to them at this point. But <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm really excited and yeah, I'm great, grateful for that advice. And I feel like that's classic Adam Hutchison advice that you could apply to, you know, any of these endeavors, right? Like, yep. and I, I tell people, I tell clients this all the time or, or people that I'm helping fly fish, like all of these skills that you're trying to develop, the end state of them is to be able to enjoy fly fishing. So you only need to get quote unquote good enough 
at fly fishing to get to the point where you're having a good time and enjoying it. And that's going to be different for different people. So, you know, just get to that point and ride it out as long as you can. And then when you're no longer enjoying it at the skill level that you have, you need to acquire some new skills. So just, just enjoy it. Have fun. That's, that's what we're out here for. That's exactly right, man. That's exactly right. And look for a Billy with a horse head too. That was like, you know, they're like, look for the horse head. I'm sure you've heard that before, but when you see uh, a goat with a horse head, you know, it's, I mean, let's face it, like a Boone and Crockett Billy, uh, if we're comparing like goats to elk, I mean, or big muleys, you know, they're a little bit tougher to, to judge, man. You know, that's, uh, you know, even nannies I've seen, you know, in my hunt, I saw some really big nannies <laughs> in my goal. My goal was like, Hey, I want to, I want to shoot a Billy, you know, for, for a couple of different reasons in Montana, when you draw a Montana tag in most units, you can shoot uh, a Billy or a, a nanny without kids, you know, and my goal, whether it was with a bow or a rifle was, was to get a mature Billy because I mean, you take out even, I, I don't have a problem with someone shooting a, a kidless nanny at all, but um, I just think it, it helps out that population and, and goats kind of struggled a little bit, you know, but uh, look for that horse head. I mean, I, I, the Billy I ended up taking, I spotted him from like three miles away as a white speck on a South facing Hill. And even through my spotting, I mean, at that distance, I could tell this sucker had a horse head and that's, that's really what, uh, and then the next weekend I went in there 10 miles to find this thing. He hadn't moved 15 yards and uh, he ended up being a, about a 13 year old Billy. So he was, uh, he was pretty tremendous. Uh, but yeah, look for that horse head and uh, that, that kind of, as far as age is concerned, uh, that really identifies bigger billies from smaller ones is what I found. So. Okay. Well, I'm going to do my best to make you proud, sir. And Adam, I can't, Thank you enough for, for taking the time to sit down and talk with me today. It's, it's been too long and I look forward to getting out in the woods or, or on a crick with you here as soon as possible. Yeah. Let's, let's scratch out some time. We're all, we're all busy, busier than we, we ever have, but uh, that's, that's important. So yeah, we'll figure yeah. it out. Like maybe, maybe another grand Ron trip, huh? So yeah, sounds good. If, if we get any steelhead to come back ever again, we should go try and catch at least one of them. Sounds like a plan, you know? All right, brother. Well, thank you again. And uh, if people want to find out more about you or about Winston Fly Rods, where do they go? Uh, www.winstonrods.com for our website. Uh, Instagram is at Winston Rod or at Winston Rods, um, at Winston Rods for Facebook as well. But uh, yep, uh, the website has all of our product information and everything else. Some really great some really great films to kind of keep, keep people entertained. You know, if they, if they have to stay home, we, we invest a lot of money in the films and uh, obviously a lot. So yeah, that's where they can find me. Me. I'm on Instagram at a Hutchison one zero three two. So that's, that's where I spend most of my social media time is, is on Instagram. So. And if you're ever driving through twin bridges, Montana, stop into Winston they have a beautiful showroom with all kinds of fly rods out there. They've got a, a casting course right out front. You can go cast rods uh, in the wind, more than likely, until you're 
your heart is content. Yep, generally. Um, right now with uh, the pandemic going on, um, since we've had to reduce our uh, production staff and our and our front office staff, uh, we've closed the showroom down uh, this summer and closed tours. Um, but 2021, we'll, we, we're hopeful we'll be back up and running. But uh, we can certainly help people out through the this summer. I mean, you can still cast rods. We have we can pull any rod in our showroom and you can certainly cast them on the casting field and buy accessories through the window as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, we're here. So stop on by uh, for sure. So but awesome, hopefully man. 2021 is a different year than 2020, you know, that's everybody's hope. Okay. Well, thank you, sir. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Thank you, sir. It was great. Great catching up. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. This episode was edited by Emily Brannigan, with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Artwork for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatterlin and digitized by Celia Christofferson. If you enjoyed the show, I encourage you to share it with a friend and subscribe. You can find photos and more content on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.